You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure, Stephen. We're going to continue our discussion by speaking about Cicero today and about De Officiis. Now, we've talked about uh, Cicero in the past, Dr. Fleming. What are we going to talk about differently this time, or what are we going to cover more specifically this time that we didn't talk about last time? Well, last uh, we did several uh, discussions of Cicero's uh, De Officiis, or De Officiis, on, 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 on moral responsibilities, and some of those responsibilities were political. Today, we're going to look instead at an earlier work, the De Republica, which is specifically about uh, the nature of political duty, so it's a, certainly a connection with the other work, but also the the idea of what a uh, a perfect commonwealth would be like. Both these works are written written in later years. The De Officiis is written about the time of Julius Caesar's uh, assassination, so it is a period of more or less political despair uh, for uh, Cicero. He had been pushed out of politics, but when he starts to work on the De Republica, he's still active involved in politics. He goes off to be the the, uh, governor of the province of Cilicia and actually wins a military victory, which he sort of brags about. But the rise of the triumvirate, the rise of the three-man rule, Julius Caesar, Pompeius Magnus, and uh, and Licinius, Licinius Crassus, Marcus Crassus, uh, they, you know, they agreed that they would not uh, allow any legislation or measures to be passed without the approval of all three. So, and they, uh, Crassus had the money, Julius had the crooked political machine, and Pompey was the, uh, was regarded as the great military genius of the age. The, uh, the triumvirate unfortunately began to fall apart with the death of Crassus in battle. He he unwisely attacked the Parthian Empire. And then the death of Julius's daughter, Julia, who is married uh, to Pompey. And apparently it was a very beautiful, he was old enough to be her father, but it was a, a, a very loving marriage on both sides. And Julius was, uh, was very fond of his daughter. And so this, she was the cement. So as it falls apart and these two competing egomaniacs are trying to decide how to rule, how they'll take over the whole, uh, the whole empire, I, I almost said the whole enchilada, but that would date me to the 1970s, I think. Uh, so, so there's Cicero, uh, as the Roman Republic is unraveling, uh, is a... Uh, decides to write uh, the De Republica on, on the Commonwealth, on the Republic, and to consider the ideal form that a Commonwealth should take. And of course, that ideal form turns out to be very close to the historical uh, example of the Roman Republic. So it partly reflects a cautious optimism that with wise leadership, uh, the Commonwealth, the Roman Republic, can be saved. But a lot of it, of course, it, Cicero's last years will be dominated by his relations with Julius Caesar, and uh, that in itself is a, is a fascinating thing because they were the two uh, among the two most intelligent and and literate 
people in the period. And they enjoyed each other's company. They admired each other. They wrote different prose styles, but both were masters. And they had had much of the same background, although Cicero was a, a social nobody and Caesar came from two distinguished family traditions. But uh, and eventually Cicero, at one point during the period of the triumvirate, realizes his only hope is Caesar. And so against his better judgment, he attaches himself to Caesar. And it, it doesn't it doesn't work because Julius wants him to do things he doesn't want to do. And eventually Cicero sort of is pushed out completely. And when Caesar is assassinated, though, he is so compromised that the assassins, Brutus and Cassius and their friends, don't even call on him. There's a wonderful scene in Shakespeare where they talk about why uh, they, they said he's, he has eyes like a ferret. You know, they just don't, they don't trust him anymore. He's played mm-hmm. political games. Well, and I remember we have the lean and hungry look from the beginning of that play. Yes, yes. Uh, it's a remarkable play. By the way, on our uh, Cicero Summer School, uh, Dr. Frank Brownlow will be uh, talking about Julius Caesar, the play, the Shakespeare play, as it reflects the politics of this period. And uh, Do you approve of the Marlon Brando rendering in the, in the film? You know, it's funny. When I saw that movie originally, some time ago, when it came out, the um, I liked the movie. I thought Brando was... Tr- I didn't know much about Brando, and I thought he was trying hard n- and not to be uh, the tough thug that he... Uh, uh, which is the part he always played, and I always thought that came natural. Actually, he was an upper-middle-class kid. His father was a career army officer, and he, and he ran away from prep school to be an actor. So uh, all of that tough guy stuff in Brando was fake, like everything else about it. Um, I thought he did an okay job. I thought James Mason did. See, it's, it's what Hollywood can do. Hollywood takes uh, Shakespeare and in a way makes junk out of it. But um, the, the parts are, I think, quite interesting. Um, the, uh, again, James Mason is Brutus and uh, Casca, played by the great Edmund O'Brien, most famous for movies like... Um, uh, dead on arrival, or he plays the drunken newspaper editor in the man who shot Liberty Valance, and uh, so I and uh, Lewis Calhern, a good New York stage actor and a movie actor who has the he he has the old fashioned upper class New York accent, and it's wonderful to hear. I used to know a man named Rudolf Shermer, who is you know the uh, the Shermer music publishing firm and Shermer uh, was a very well brought up man and uh, he had that accent and it was it's wonderful to hear he just uh, it's gone, completely gone like the old charleston accent it's completely gone i well, we would watch uh, movies like that uh, like julius caesar in latin class under the auspices of oh well you can see the costuming and the eagles and the SPQR and our Latin teachers were never really focused on how good the movie was, but would say, Hey, look at this, look at this, look at this. Yeah. So maybe, maybe useful for some things. I thought Brando did his big speeches reasonably well, but you know, he wasn't, he took, he did have a voice addiction coach and various other things. But you know, the truth is that to play Shakespeare properly, takes a lot more than a couple of weeks of lessons. uh, (laughs) I guess we should be grateful he just didn't slip. I I could have been a contender uh, (laughs) during Anthony's uh, important speech. Um, Now, as is the conceit for some classical works we've already looked at, this is a dialogue. Uh, Who are the participants in this dialogue? 
Well, we have several participants who uh, are used as dramatic foils, but really, uh, and of course, there's an introduction in which Cicero is simply talking, but the main speakers are Scipio Africanus Minor, that is the conqueror, the final conqueror of Carthage in the Third uh, Punic War, and his friend and mentor, uh, Lelius. Uh, there were two. There were very. Scipio Africanus Minor was the was the dominant figure in Rome in the late second century uh, BC. So why did Cicero pick Scipio? Well, uh, Scipio he was the adopted son of uh, of the elder Scipio Africanus, uh, who defeated Hannibal in the Second Punic War. He was also the uh, birth son of Aemilius Paulus, who defeated the Macedonians, and he was one of the great uh, Roman generals, and but a very close friend of the Scipios. And but C- Cicero sees himself to a large extent as uh, the reincarnation of Scipio. Scipio was uh, was a, a brilliant uh, political leader, and he had saved the Roman uh, Republic from the threat of the Carthaginians. But envy, the envy of lesser men, this is Cicero's interpretation of history, had dri- driven him in to retire from public life under under serious threats, and uh, and almost into exile. And Cicero, who, after all, had saved the Roman Republic in his consulship in 64 BC, 63, uh, by defeating the Catalinarian conspiracy, and then uh, this uh, agitator, upper-class agitator, uh, Publius Clodius, operating probably under instructions from Caesar and Pompey, had driven Cicero out of Rome, then burned his house down, and put a death sentence on So he sees himself, and both, both Cicero and Scipio are both very well educated in, in Greek, and uh, they're, cl- they're classically trained, and so Cicero can use the great Scipio reasonably as a kind of mouthpiece for himself. Well, we know that the Romans like to shall we say, borrow or expropriate Greek things? Dr. Fleming, did, is Cicero taking this dialogue form that we're going to see um, from, from Plato? Yes, certainly. Uh, of course, Plato seems to have more or less invented the philosophical dialogue, but it was imitated by his students, including Aristotle. You know, none of Aristotle's dialogues survived, but uh, they were regarded as masterpieces of, uh, of prose writing and very elegant, very beautiful. Ironically, what we have, all the works of Aristotle we have are his uh, sort of lecture notes in which are uh, somewhat crude and unrevised. And so people have made drawn the false conclusion that while Plato is a great writer, as well as a great thinker, Aristotle is only a great thinker and a crude prose stylist. Now, there's some of it, like the poetics of the politics, are pretty finished, but he never sat down and did the kind of work on these lectures that Plato did on the Republic. You know, they say when they found Plato slumped over his desk, he had, he had done five variations in word order of the first sentence of the Republic, which was just, yesterday I went down to the Piraeus. Went down to the Piraeus yesterday I went, you know. And, um, the thing is that if there ever was a, a writer of uh, serious prose who was a complete master, who turns prose into music, and a thing of great beauty. This is Plato. It's worth the effort of learning Greek 
just to read uh, Plato's prose. It gets worse in old age because he gets to thornier and thornier uh, pol- uh, philosophical problems. But really, the early dialogues, of, the early and middle dialogues of Plato are, are incredibly beautiful and very subtle portrayals of character with use of, use of tiny little aspects of phrasing and Greek grammar by which capture the character of the, uh, of the people. So, the uh, so yeah, he certainly uh, he certainly uh, imitates Plato. It says so explicitly. There's Plato's Republic. There's Cicero's Republic. Of course, with Plato, it's the Politeia. But the Cicero, the nearest thing you can get is Res Publica, Republic. And certainly, he looks upon himself as a Platonist. You know, Plato's some of Plato's successors over the centuries became more and more what is called academic, by which I don't mean that they uh, taught in universities or uh, corrupted the young, but rather that they uh, were skeptical about the possibility of certain knowledge. And one of the things Cicero certainly picks up from uh, Plato is skepticism. You can come, you can make approximations. You can get closer and closer to the truth, but you never actually get there. Now, this reflects the very late Plato, I think, who is skeptical about his own ideas. But even more, it reflects that uh, the Platonist teachers that Cicero had had uh, in Athens when he, when he studied there. So obviously, we have the the style. What what other themes does Cicero pull from Plato and the Greeks? Well, the uh, first of all, uh, the dominant part of book one, and today I think we'll confine ourselves to book one because uh, book two goes off in quite a different direction. Uh, the three model forms of ideal forms of government, which are uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and uh, democracy. And also the three deformed or corrupted types. Monarchy is deformed into tyranny, although, by the way, so is democracy. But uh, aristocracy is deformed into rule of the few and the powerful and the wealthy, which is oligarchy. And democracy is deformed into mob rule, autocracy. So Cicero borrows that wholesale. Um, from uh, Plato, and also discussion of the the importance of political liberty. This is certainly a theme in Plato, although he does not understand it as, say, we would today. Cicero emphasizes, maybe more than Plato, that when a regime is overthrown, like if you kill the king, uh, the results, what happens next, a lot of that depends on what sort of people the rebels are. For example, if you have an abusive tyrant, say Tarquinius Tarquinius Superbus, Tarquin the Proud, the last of the Roman kings, um, public-spirited aristocrats, sick of misrule, for the sake of the good of the people, overthrow the Tarquins. But there are parallel cases that aristocrats overthrowing a a king, and it may even be a reasonable king, they're primarily seeking to displace him because they want to share his wealth and power. And this is what happens in every single revolution in Latin America. You know, you have the the evil tyrant, Batista, 
and he's overthrown by the noble idealist Fidel Castro, who within 10 years is the evil tyrant. And this goes, you know, every, everyone, Papa Doc Duvalier, people, oh, what a terrible man. Yeah, but he overthrew, the, he was the tyrant killer. And every rotten Latin American or Philippine dictatorship follows this course. And that's because the people who are doing the rebellion are themselves power seeking. So what you always end up is with oligarchy. Similarly, you have the same thing with uh, with democracy over you know, taking power from an aristocracy or oligarchy. Uh, you know, if you have a virtuous populist uprising, a la the American uh, Revolution, it can accomplish some good. But when a mob is seeking freedom from all restraint, the then you end up with uh, something like the French Revolution. Now, interestingly, uh, Plato anticipated this, and uh, and Cicero, during the course of the dialogue, um, they ask uh, Scipio to summarize Plato's uh, section on the Republic on what happens when anarchy takes over. And I, I'm going to read this little bit. It's from um, uh, chapter uh, 53, of uh, the first book of the Republic. So, Scipio um, uh, says, I think you're familiar. Well, it is familiar. He says, those who follow the lead of prominent citizens are persecuted by such a people and called willing slaves. But those who, though they are at office, try to act like private citizens, and those private citizens who try to destroy all distinction between a private citizen and a magistrate are praised to the skies and loaded with honors. We just pause on this. One of the signs of anarchy and total corruption is that when government leaders try to pretend to be just private citizens and, and, and in fact, pursue their own self-interest, and when private citizens start uh, making policy and acting like their leaders, it necessarily follows in such a state that liberty prevails everywhere to such an extent that not only are homes one and all without a master, so the, the power of the, of the home master is destroyed, but the vice of anarchy extends even to the domestic animals, so that even people can't even control their bloody dogs. So, does this sound familiar? This is suburban America. Until finally, the father fears his son, the son flouts his father, all sense of shame disappears, and all is so absolutely free that there is no distinction between citizen and alien, <clears throat> you know, which is, you know, aliens have rights in America. This is, this is unparalleled. Pupils despise their masters, youths take on the gravity of age, and old men stoop to the games of youth, like go out to Vegas and pick up showgirls at the age of 80, for fear they may be disliked by their juniors and seem to them too serious. Under such conditions, even the slaves come to behave with unseemly freedom. Wives have the same rights as their husbands. Notice we're, we're getting an arc up, and more and more incredible. And in the abundance of liberty, even the dogs, the horses, and the asses are so free in their running about that men must make way for them uh, in the streets. Now, it, it's funny. This is, the, this is Plato and Cicero's vision of hell. And it's the daily reality of, uh, of life in America. Now, so the, uh, this is uh, uh, pretty uh, strong. 
Cicero then, uh, another aspect in which uh, he is very much a platonic, but also, also following more in the line of the Greek historian Polybius, who lived in Rome for quite some time and admired the Romans, uh, Cicero insists that no one form of government is actually the best, but rather a, a, a system which incorporates all three elements. You know, a monarchical head, a, an, an aristocratic legislative body, and a uh, and yet still the people, the, the ordinary people, have freedom and rights, uh, as especially in so as far as concerns their own life. So we're only probably going to have time for book one uh, that to to look at today, Doctor Fleming. How is that like and unlike the Republic? Well, first and most basically, there's Cicero's stated object. Unlike Plato, who wanted to outline and describe what a model republic would be, uh, Cicero wants to find in the Roman Commonwealth a kind of historical experiential basis for political ideal. And it's always important to remember that Plato says in the beginning of the Republic that it's a kind of thought experiment. Now, maybe he's, maybe he's just joking here, but he says the object is to find out uh, what is a just man, what is a just human personality. And so, so Socrates says, well, sometimes, you know, if you look at things in a bigger example, then you can see the rough outline. So let's move from talking about the individual to talking about the commonwealth. And so if we, if we know what a just commonwealth is, then we'll know what a just individual is. And of course, in a just commonwealth, it's ruled by those who are, who's are, who are reasonable and self-controlled. So in the just individual, he'll be, do, he'll be motivated by reason and discipline and self-control. So the whole point there, now I, I think we can take a little bit of this with a grain of salt because Plato was a serious political theorist. But on the other hand, his object is to find the nature of justice Whereas Cicero's object is to find, uh, is very pragmatic. He wants to find a system that works. So he begins with uh, uh, a post-Platonic idea, which you got from uh, Epicurus. Epicurus, of course, was a total materialist, indifferent to religion, although he said you had to hide that indifference, who wanted to explain everything in terms of simple material cause and effect, like any most modern, uh, most modern people who, who are uh, think at all about human life, it's you know there's for Epicurus it was atoms and void and nothing else, no gods, no supernatural, nothing. There was an explanation for everything, and a wise man, uh, the Epicureans argued, a wise man would stay out of politics because you get it's a lot of time and effort on very low class scummy people that you really uh, they're not going to be grateful and you'll get yourself in trouble. So uh, Cicero uh, believes politics is not an abstraction. It's not just so. It's not just a pie in the sky theory, and the idea that a wise man who had studied political theory could, in an emergency, not be the general on the white horse who rides in, but would come in patiently and explain to his fellow citizens right from wrong. Cicero said, if you haven't spent your life in politics, you're not going to do any good. By the way, one of the delusions in America is that what we really need is an outsider. 
you see, because political insiders are corrupt and evil, whereas some virtuous outsider like Ross Perot or Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, would come in and be clean and honest and open. And they would have the copy to be like Will uh, Will Rogers. Uh, I only know what I read in the papers. And, you know, and with common sense, you're going to solve these problems. That's never been true. Not even in a, not even a little village government. You have to know where the levers are to be pulled or otherwise, especially these uh, these amateurs, these outsiders are very easy to manipulate. Nothing is more uh, is more inviting to the political wire puller than the, the amateur statesman who rises above things. And by the way, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, there's a the the Cassius makes the mistake of thinking that that's what Brutus is. Brutus is his pawn. And at, at near the end of the play, Brutus starts saying, starts insulting him and calling him ambitious and everything. And he says, "What you talk this to me?" And 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 Brutus just stick, as we say in the South, he sticks it in and breaks it off. He just tells him, "I'll t- I'll talk to you any way I like." And it's clear that Brutus is actually the master of the situation. Brilliant, brilliant scene. And and certainly Brutus was a much more practical politician than he is usually uh, regarded as. But anyway, Cicero says. Unless um, you have to be a practiced orator, you have to know how to group. You have to know whom to pay. You have to you have to know what what is the awful sign. You know you have you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You've got to know how to make deals. One of the reasons why our own current beloved president has any successes, he 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 knows one thing about politics only, and that is that you have to pay big money to the crooked politicians if you want to get something out of them. But he also, too, he knows he knows how to make deals. It may be okay. He hired a ghostwriter for the art of the deal. But the fact so you're, you're saying if you want to drain the drain the swamp, you have to be a swamp monster yourself. To some extent, you better be, you better at least have swum have been swimming in the in the swamp. So Cicero takes a much more Aristotelian approach, and we know that he read and admired Aristotle, uh, although Plato was his guru, so to speak. But uh, that political wisdom comes not from abstract thinking, but it also it comes from experience. It's 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 the virtue of prudence, or what the Greeks call sophrosune. Uh, and th- this is the ability to, for example, uh, understand the, the present and future in the light of the past, and uh, the ability to, uh, as as uh, Lyndon Johnson once said of Gerald Ford, that he couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. You have to be able to do that. You have to be able to ho- entertain two opposite thoughts and two opposite interests in your mind. And one of the results of this, like in Cicero's morality, there's an, and, and in the De Republica, there's an emphasis on what is usually translated as virtue. But see, Latin virtus is, uh, it overlaps with our word virtue, but it's much closer to the Renaissance Italian virtu. Virtus is manliness. It's, uh, it's not an abstract goodness, but it's an active goodness, something that must be practiced. It's, it's, it is um, a little bit like the Greek Andrea, uh, a cross between Andrea, which means courage, and arete, which means the pursuit of excellence. And therefore, the noblest exercise that a man can undergo, a virtuous man can, can, uh, can can engage in is to try to serve his own people, to serve the Commonwealth. Now, in most uh, 
translations. I've been I've been using um, C.W. Uh, Key's uh, Loeb translation here. Um, in most translations, they'll translate uh, "res publica" as as uh, the state. The state is a very tricky notion, and it basically it comes about in late medieval and Renaissance Italy, and it always implies that there is an apparatus separate from the comp from the people themselves. You know, when we talk about the deep state, the permanent state, and uh, this is inconceivable to 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 the understanding of a, a Greek or Roman. When Cicero talks about the race publica, and he, and he has some explicit discussion in here, which is quite nice. It is the 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 a race often mistranslated as thing, is an activity, usually a human activity, uh, an enterprise, an activity, a business, an affair, a concern. And it's the race publica, from populus, the people. So it's the people's business, the, pe the thing that the people have in common, and therefore commonwealth uh, comes closest. And there are, of course, organs of for exercising power in the commonwealth, but it is not the it is not power per se and the pursuit of power that defines the Greek politeia or the uh, or the race publica, but rather the fact that we're all we citizens are all in this together and share hopes and fears and dreams and try to work out our problems in common. Uh, you know, Tacitus says at one point that. Uh, the only just laws are laws which affect everyone equally. And so any law which privileges a minority, for example, and a grotesque example being, say, affirmative action laws, any of our, uh, is already inherently unjust because it's not, it's not, it doesn't concern the whole commonwealth. It concerns some self-seeking portion of the commonwealth. I wish more people uh, understood that. So the Republic is, is the Commonwealth. It is the, is the business which all the citizens, not, not aliens and not slaves, but all the citizens have in common. So, and, and those citizens have in common in a functioning, in a functioning Republic, virtus. But if it's something that must be practiced, yeah. would you say that Cicero doesn't believe in a, a natural goodness? Yeah, I think that's true. I think in fact it's 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 maybe even Cicero is more emphatic on this perhaps than he needs to be. For him, uh, law and custom, tradition are the agents to teach us how to live virtuously and teach us uh, how to uh, obey the law and to uh, and to essentially to lead a decent, virtuous law-abiding life. Now, so he, he would say, he would say it takes a village, Dr. Fleming? <laughs> takes a village to raise an idiot. <laughs> the, uh, he quotes Anacrates as saying that uh, the, the, the uh, laws compel us to do what philosophy teaches us to do is the right thing. And he, this is not, the conclusions Anacrates would have drawn, he was a friend and disciple of uh, Aristotle, so Anacrates would have concluded that philosophy is more important than, uh, than uh, politics and law. But for Cicero, uh, the important thing is to have a correctly formed commonwealth with virtuous leaders who use their virtue to imp and impose it on the people. And this is very similar, I think, to 
some of Cicero's uh, more prominent disciples in the Italian Renaissance, like uh, Coluccio Salutati and uh, Leonardo Bruni, who, who create this notion of civic humanism, and that the reason to become educated and studious and to learn Greek and Latin and study philosophy is so that you can then become of use to the Republic, to the Florentine Republic or whatever, whatever community you live in. So uh, it does seem, it seems to me that this involves Cicero in something of a contradiction. Which is? Well, consider, if we're sociable by nature, which Cicero believes, Cicero believes that the Commonwealth doesn't just exist because uh, we, were, we would slaughter each other uh, if we didn't have it. In other, in other words, it's not like Hobbes. You know, life in a state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short, or even in Locke. And by the way, they're both following Epicurus on this, that, that, that if that men devised government because there were too, too many shortcomings in, in anarchy, people would abuse each other, you know, whether severely as in the case of Hobbes or at least with great inconvenience in, in the case of Locke. No, Cicero following Aristotle believes that man is a political animal. That is, our nature is only, our human nature is perfected through living in families, kindred groups, villages, and ultimately living in a commonwealth. So this, this is to be fully human, you can't, uh, they would not approve, say, of a, of a hermit. The but, Desert Fathers. Yeah, they would approve of a monastery because a monastery is a little republic and where people can enhance each other's virtue. So if this is true, which Cicero believes, then laws... And uh, laws and politics, while they're very important in the way they steer us in the right direction and keep reminding us, sort of like a nagging mother, about right and wrong, they are not the basis of good order. The basis of good order is the same nature, our same human need to live with each other that produces both the laws and our feelings of decency. And here I would say, I, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not really... This is not a bad criticism. It's, I'm just saying that I think that, like any thinker, Cicero, uh, Cicero will overemphasize uh, a point when, when, he's when he's trying to convince you. But, you know, the Scottish uh, common sense philosophers, people like, uh, like uh, Francis Hutchison, Thomas Reed, and to a large extent, David Hume, they have this notion by common sense, they don't mean, well, I got common sense. I don't got book learning. I got No, what they mean is the sensus communis. What is, if you study human nature across, from, from, across, across cultures, there are certain, we, we, we have certain feelings that are universal, like, like uh, compassion for the downtrodden. Although I, I, I happen to think that's a little less universal than, uh, than say, uh, Adam Smith thought. But, you know, we have senses of fairness. Children have a sense of fair play. And if you, you see, watch eight-year-old boys playing baseball, it's constantly, you're cheating. That's not fair because they have this rudimentary sense. And, of course, for them, they're, they're models of fairness and they're, they're, their little playmates are always cheating. But so uh, I think the, co the common sense philosopher boys are, to some extent, uh, on target. And, by the way, they're reflecting Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle in this. Well, and, and even to go back be, before St. Thomas and, and Aristotle, I'm thinking of a phrase, it, it is not good for a man to be alone. That yes, may not yes. just apply 
solely to the marital life, but to our social life as well. Yeah. No, it's uh, one of the things when I was working into my first book, which was uh, meant to combine a traditional understanding of the political order with whatever modern science could teach us. And one of the things I kept running across was I would have three, have keep three balls in the air. One is the classical tradition has continued into the Middle Ages and in, even down to people like David Hume. The, the other was uh, the tradition of the the Old and New Testament and of the Christian church. And the third ball was modern genetics, sociobiology, anthropology. And it was amazing how time after time after time, and then if you wanted to spread it out, by the way, you can go to India and China and find the, you know, the wiser thinkers in those cultures. And they all agree on fundamentals, like the heart of man is desperately wicked above all things, and that we're limited, we're, we're always seeking for status, or always, men are always, always trying to have as many women as they can. All of these things are, nat are natural human tendencies recognized in the Old Testament and the New Testament, recognized by popular wisdom, recognized by the classics, and anybody who, who studies uh, modern science comes to the same conclusion. But what is it against? Well, it's it's against 500 years of liberalism, which is pie in the sky. I mean, people like Rousseau and Locke write now, counterintuitive nonsense. So with Cicero and Aristotle, we are we're in the heart of a tradition of political realism, but it's also moral realism, not just political realism. We're dealing with people who understand how the world works, they have lived, they have lived in, in next to power. And in Cicero's case, he's held power, he's wielded power. He understands that this is that there's a lot of dirt in the business, but that's not what the business is about. And that mankind is never going unaided, is never going to sail up to the skies and become angelic because we're part angel and we're part brute beast. And uh, this this is very important wisdom, I think, for uh, for anyone who doesn't want to go crazy. Well, in, in that frame of moral realism, Dr. Fleming, I suppose it's easy to understand that we are supposed to be good and, and we may even have good instincts. But why precisely should the best men do their duty, so-called, and enter politics? Well, Cicero's uh, Scipio, uh, again, his mouthpiece, argues that we, uh, we have an instinct uh, and that instinct is that we want to be admired. We want to have a good reputation that we pass down to our uh, children and grandchildren, fame. The Romans often used the word gloria. You know, in fact, Cicero wrote a book which is missing, um, De Gloria. At one point, Petrarch got a hold of a copy and somebody, some friend of his, asked to borrow it. And then the friend pawned it. And poor Petrarch says, I'll pay the money. Just let, oh, no, 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 no. It's my responsibility to, to get this book out of hock and never did. And so this uh, undoubted, a very important book of Cicero is lost because of some irresponsible uh, jerk. It's like some terrible science fiction story. Anyway, so we desire people because we have this, this we would look upon, Christians would look upon this as a weakness. But the, the ancients thought that uh, a man ought to serve his country and become sort of, if to the extent he could become a great man, and he, he had to have a, a, a proper regard for himself. 
and very there's very interesting discussions, by the way, in St. Thomas. Is, is this a bad thing or a good thing? And his answer is by no means simplistic. It is by no means, oh, well, you should just humble yourself in all circumstances. Really? Does the Pope humble himself in all, even the greatest of popes in all circumstances? Aren't there some circumstances where it, to, 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 to an improper humility it shows contempt for the very values you claim to be espousing. Anyway, so this is this is wonderful stuff that uh, that uh, that uh, Cicero has Scipio go into, and it's very similar to some things that Sallust, who is a contemporary of Cicero, puts in at the beginning of his uh, of his uh, historical essay on uh, the Catilinary conspiracy. So it is our desire for glory, for fame and glory, and high repute, for respect. It's that impulse which allows us to rise above the mere animal, because this, this leads us to write books, it leads us to make scientific discoveries. These are good things. Now, modern skeptics, look, reading Cicero or Sallust, would say this is all childish. Cicero is absurdly anthropocentric. He, he thinks that human beings are the center because he thinks human life is more important than, say, all the other things in the universe. And what he didn't know is that we're just a small part of the Earth, and uh, we're a, the Earth is a grain of sand among what uh, Carl Sagan would call billions and billions of stars, and that, that this, our, the littleness of man in comparison with the universe should teach us uh, that that we're nothing and nothing we do matters because one of the t modern tenets you know is that nothing in human life really matters so that you might as well have a good time while you're here. Scipio says on the other hand uh, this is in uh, chapter 16 of book one how can any man regard anything in human affairs either as exalted if he is examined into the realms of the gods or as, or as of long duration, if he has realized the meaning of eternity, or as glorious, that is, how can anything be glorious if a man has perceived how small is the earth? Not only the earth as a whole, but especially that part of it which is inhabited by man, and has noticed how we Romans, though confined to a scanty portion of it, and entirely unknown to many races of men, hope nevertheless that our name will be born abroad on wings and will spread to the ends of the earth. In other words, the point is, they knew, they knew exactly how they fit into the universe. I mean, Cicero has no illusions. The, the, the Roman Empire covers one-tenth of the, of the globe, and the whole world is full of American Indians or, who are, or Chinese have never heard of them, don't even know they exist. And yet the earth itself is a grain of sand compared to the universe. And yet, nonetheless, to achieve something noble is worth the effort. And, uh, and, and there is, a, a, I think, a, a depth of understanding of what, of human possibility and what makes human life really ultimately uh, something better than mere physical animal existence. And that's one of the many lessons that can be learned uh, out of the first book of the De Republica. Yes, and I was going to say that's just book one, <laughs> dear, dear, dear listeners. Yeah, book, well, two, from, book two and three are more famous, actually. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about today that you wanted to cover before we finish up today's episode, Dr. Fleming? 
other than uh, go out and you buy yourself a copy of the Day Republic. It's not it's not all that long a book. And uh, one of the things I didn't talk about is the fact that the book, uh, although very influential, was lost uh, for a long time. One part of it, the Scipio has a dream uh, about the about the the other world, the afterlife, etc. And that dream. Uh, was was preserved as a as a part of a of a work of late antiquity, but the rest of it was completely lost, except for a few stray quotations. Until Cardinal Angelo Mai found uh, a palimpsest. A palimpsest is a manuscript which has been scribbled over, and I believe the surface of it was something something of Augustine known in thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And then underneath it, he realized, was the De Republica. So um, Angelo Mai went to work on it uh, and uh, worked hard, and his eyesight got worse and worse and worse. And when he could finally publish it, he was, he was blind. And, he, and it's, it's a, very meaning, a very moving thing. He, when he, he, the dedication was he takes uh, what Catullus says about his brother because I loved you more than my eyes. That is scholarship. Well, I think that's a good place to end. And I hope listeners, you, you do not necessarily love us more than your eyes, but you do love us enough. More than and your pocket. Okay. <laughs> we're always welcome that at the Fleming foundation as always, Dr. Fleming, thank you so much for your time. And we will be back with you, dear listeners for another episode. Okay. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, Make the most of a dark age.